Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenis, and glad to have you here. I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Paul Thomas Murphy, author of Shooting Victoria and the book we're discussing today, Pretty Jane and the Viper of Kidbrook Lane, a true story of Victorian law and disorder, the unsolved murder that shocked Victorian England. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. So I have to ask you right off the bat, you've written a wonderful book on a murder in historic turn-of-the-century London. This is actually your, your second Victorian-era book set in England, but you're an American. How, how did you become so interested in a place so far away? It's it's um, I've sort of spent years in Victorian England in a way because uh, my academic training is uh, I'm a Victorianist. I taught it. Um, I was actually um, specialized in Victorian literature and then about 10 years ago uh, took a shift into history and uh, then started looking at uh, um, some footnote figures in Victorian history and started looking at the assassins, would be assassins of Queen Victoria. They all failed. Uh, and that got me into the first book. So uh, from then on, it's it's been uh, Victorian nonfiction. So how did you come across this specific murder, and what motivated you to write about it? Yeah, this one was was really a, a happy accident because uh, when I was finishing with shooting Victoria, uh, I was back in London, sort of uh, checking the archives one more time, and sort of doing a little premature celebration of <laughs> being done with the book. And one of my friends there happens to be, uh, in uh, his spare time, uh, a guide at a cemetery in South London, uh, Broccoli and Ladywell Cemetery. And when we were out uh, uh, prematurely celebrating, I uh, was already sort of looking for a new idea and asked him if he was going to write a book about anybody in that cemetery, who would it be? And he immediately, immediately uh, said Jane Clouson and then said, Oh, Let Me Die, which was uh, probably her last words, uh, and then told me a little bit about uh, what he knew about the murder. And uh, it, right from the start, it seemed like a fascinating story, but I uh, told him I'd look into it, see if it really there was a book in it, and uh, dug into it, and uh, I, I, I believe there was, and so I wrote it. So let's start where you start in your book, a police constable walking a remote beat on April 26th, 1871, makes a really horrifying discovery. Can you talk about that discovery? Yeah, it's it's uh, on a uh, abandoned, at least at that time in the morning, country lane. Uh, 
and uh, it's uh, he he first thinks it's just a heap of clothing, and then he thinks he realizes it's a body. Uh, and he at first thinks that it's just uh, this this part of uh, the lane is was notorious as a lover's lane, and he was pretty sure it was somebody who had just been a woman who had been sort of dumped uh, by uh, an ungallant lover, I guess. Uh, and uh, then he realized uh, when he actually looked more closely that she had been horribly injured, uh, was battered uh, around the head, uh, and uh, he found assistance, got her to Guy's Hospital, uh, which was uh, uh, several miles away in Southwark. And uh, five days later, she died. Uh, But uh, it it was a horrendous murder. When he discovers her body, she's still conscious. She drifts back into consciousness uh, just enough time to say those words, uh, oh, let me die, and asks him, uh, she's actually gets up on her hands and knees and uh, asks him to uh, hold her hand. And he's so horrified at first that he can't react. And by the time he does, it's too late. She falls. But, uh, yeah, she was just in con- conscious that long uh, to say that. Uh, and even though she lived five days longer, uh, she never came back to consciousness, uh, certainly never came back, uh, uh, never was able to identify her killer, for one thing. And she also says, oh, my head, my poor head, or something to that effect, right? Right, right, uh, yeah, and, uh, and then, uh, and then, oh, let me die, uh, and that's it. So where did this happen in relation to the city of London, and what did the area look like in 1871? This is outside the town, the small town of Eltham, uh, just north of there, and uh, south east of Greenwich, which is a town on the south, uh, southeast periphery of London. It's just at the edge of metropolitan London. And it's just, uh, even though, you know, you think of, I mean, London at the time was the largest city in the world. This was just getting past uh, the, the urban development and into uh, really isolated countryside. Her body was there uh, from uh, for hours and hours, and nobody passed it, uh, except perhaps the police officer himself who found her. He, he found her at about 4, 4.30 in the morning, and uh, uh, it was on his beat. Uh, he had one of the most remote beats in metropolitan London, but uh, his beat had taken him past the same spot two hours before, but he walked it in the dark. He had a lantern, but he didn't use it. Uh, and almost certainly he walked right by her. Um, so it, it was, even though it's we're, we're in London and it's the London Metropolitan Police on the job, uh, uh, it is one of the most remote parts of London. Uh, and I think that uh, is one reason why the murderer uh, chose that spot to do uh, his work. So in the minutes and hours following the discovery of Jane, what do the police do? And what does their initial investigation look like? Yeah, their initial investigation is 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 uh, very zealous. I mean, they they uh, jumped uh, to the task. They guarded the crime scene. Actually, the officer who found her was sent back to the crime scene to protect uh, it from any passerby who might sort of damage the scene. There was quite a bit of evidence. There was footprint evidence. There was blood evidence, obviously. There was uh, a pattern uh, in in the mud that showed a horrendous struggle had taken place. And uh, they they did realize the importance of sort of keeping that intact to a point because by noon that day, uh, a number of police had assembled on the scene and a number of police had tramped around the scene. And really, they did about the best they could to completely uh, taint uh, the crime scene. Uh, in the end, uh, footprint evidence could have been crucial in this case, but in the end, uh, they took no uh, footprint evidence. They knew about 1871. They knew about uh, that part of an investigation. They used plaster of Paris uh, to take impressions of feet, but uh, nobody did it. And uh, in a short time, nobody could do it. Uh, so that, that, that's one of the main things that they did. In the days afterwards, the murder weapon, uh, at least the 
hammer that was almost certainly uh, used to kill uh, Jane was discovered about uh, a mile away uh, towards Greenwich. And with that, they had a clue to work on, and they really used the resources of the police to track down the store uh, in which that was bought. And they, they succeeded in the end in finding that. So that they were able to do as well. And in a short time, within a couple of days, uh, they realized how that this this was an important case uh, and uh, enlisted Scotland Yard in the case, and they had a Scotland Yard detective uh, named John Mulvaney, uh, who who pretty much took charge of the investigation at that point. And did the investigation get better when he took charge? The, it it did and it did. I mean, there was there was a clearer chain of command, I think, and some of the evidence uh, worked its way up the chain of command. They found, for one thing, a right in the mud, right at the scene uh, of the struggle, one officer dug out uh, a little metal whistle. It was a dog whistle. It's it's actually uh, not quite what we think of when we think of a dog whistle, but uh, because it made an audible sound. But they they pulled that out of the mud. John Mulvaney, when he took over the case, he scrutinized the evidence and he actually took some of the evidence in, into his own hands uh, and sort of kept it. And one of the things he kept was the whistle. The problem is that neither he nor anybody else uh, actually logged the whistle as evidence. And that allowed the defense in the trial that followed to claim that perhaps they planted that uh, that whistle. So uh, there was a little bit of confusion about uh, how how to handle the evidence. Uh, even on John Mulvaney's part. Who are some of the people they questioned? There, were, there must have been people in the area of some interest. There were, there were a number of witnesses. Um, nobody actually saw the actual attack. Uh, the, no eyewitness uh, saw the actual attack. Uh, the police, based upon witness accounts, uh, began to put together the idea, that, uh, the theory that... Uh, Jane had been attacked in the evening before, on the 25th of April, and had sort of lain there injured uh, for a number of hours. Uh, and they were able to do that because they had a couple witnesses. Remember, this was a lover's lane, basically, and uh, it was uh, on this April evening. Um, there were is at least one couple who were also on that lane, and they uh, uh, said that they heard screams. And they also claimed to have seen uh, somebody running uh, away from the scene uh, very soon after the screams. So uh, they saw that. There was another witness. Uh, his name was Lizelle who said that around 6 o'clock that evening, um, he had passed a couple. And although he didn't recognize the female, he did recognize the male, uh, who turned out to be the prime suspect, basically, that the police had. So there were people that did see something. Uh, and uh, what they saw and who they saw became an important part of the case, as there were... Uh, identification parades or police lineups uh, that, that a number of them took place. And this is actually very early on in that kind of identification. And uh, the police made some interesting decisions as far as that goes, too, as far as how to get uh, a clear idea of who eyewitnesses saw through lineups. I can give you one example of a, a very curious uh, police lineup. Uh, there was one man that, that said he was walking down the lane and saw a couple uh, who were apparently arguing on the lane that night, and uh, he said he really only saw the male from the back. And uh, the police actually uh, set up uh, an identification for him in the police yard uh, or in the prison yard of uh, Newgate. And they marched out uh, the prime suspect, whose name was Edmund Pook, and a number of police officers in plain clothes. And he said, well, I can't really identify him from the front. So they had every single one of them turn around. And from the back, he actually identified Edmund Pook as the one that he claims he saw. Wow. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit and talk about Edmund Pook and his family. Who is Edmund Pook and how does he become their prime suspect? Yeah, well, Edmund Pook, uh, they learned, uh, Jane, they hadn't identified for five days after the attack. Uh, and actually, uh, really kind of sadly, uh, they identified her within an hour or so of the moment of her death. 
uh, which was actually she died on May 30th and uh, by uh, sorry on April 30th and by May 1st uh, they knew who she was, and after that, things happened very, very quickly. Um, the Pook family lived in downtown Greenwich. Ebenezer Pook uh, was uh, Edmund's father, was a printer, a successful printer, uh, uh, right in the heart of the town. And they employed a single servant, uh, a maid of all work, and that was Jane Cluson. Uh, so Edmund Pook was the young master, and Jane was... Well, she she was a servant, and they, in talking to family members, uh, Jane's cousins, Jane's aunt and uncle, they learned that Jane told them anyway that she had been seeing Edmund Pook, that they were lovers, and she even told one witness that uh, she and Edmund Pook were running off uh, that night uh, to get married. So the, they knew there was a connection at least according to a number of witnesses, between Edmund Pook and Jane that went beyond just a servant and a young master uh, relationship. Uh, and with that, they went to talk to the Pooks. They brought in Edmund. They confronted him with the evidence. He denied it. They sort of searched through his clothes. And uh, in, in the end, uh, as they were sitting and talking, they noticed bloodstains, bloodstains on his uh, trousers. And based upon that, based upon what they had heard from witnesses, and I believe based upon Edmund's general reaction and behavior, they thought they had enough to arrest him for her murder, and they did on May 1st. And police soon learned that she was pregnant, too. She was pregnant. Actually, that they also discovered uh, in the uh, postmortem just that day, actually. Uh, uh, yeah, and... Uh, they actually found another witness who claimed that Jane had confided to her that she was pregnant and that Edmund Pook was the father. And uh, that witness came forward once, but interestingly enough, disappeared pretty much before the trial. I mean, on the surface, it, it seems like it had to have been pretty much a slam dunk case for the police, right? I think that's what they thought. I think they thought it was it was pretty much open and shut. Uh, and then things began to fall apart uh, for the the prosecution. Uh, and a lot of that, I think, had to do with the fact that the Pooks got an incredible uh, – they got incredible legal assistance, uh, their solicitor, who was – and this kind of made things confusing in – writing uh, all of this, uh, uh, was a man by the name of Pook. Uh, he was Henry Pook. He, was a, he, was, he lived in Greenwich as well, but he was no relation to the Pooks at all. Uh, he was uh, an incredibly tenacious and uh, zealous solicitor who I, I think formed a very, very strong bond with the family. I mean, he, he, he wasn't Edmund's uncle, but he, he sort of fought as if Edmund was a family member for him. Uh, he was able to sort of question a lot of the evidence. Uh, the witness accounts uh, began to sound uh, very, very questionable. I mean, it was more than just seeing Edmund from the back. Uh, the people that said they heard screams, uh, the two witnesses said they weren't screams of agony or terror. They were screams of pleasure uh, on, on Lover's Lane, and that sort of uh, didn't help. The key witness that claimed he had seen Edmund Pook with a young woman on Kidbrook Lane that night turned out to be a terrible witness. Uh, he had an odd grimace and a stammer, and uh, uh, he basically uh, was easily confused uh, and was... Uh, also shown uh, that his his timeline, basically, he said that uh, he saw Jane a good hour before anybody else uh, heard or saw anything on the lane or just saw Edmund and Jane. And that just didn't hold up. And in fact, the witness that last saw Jane in Deptford, where she was before she left towards Kidbrook Lane, um, said uh, that Jane had, and they, they asked somebody with a watch what time it was just before Jane left, and that was just 10 minutes before this other witness said that Jane was on Kidbrook Lane. And this is, we're talking, what, three and a half miles distance from one point to the other. It was just impossible. So uh, a lot of the evidence just began to fall apart pretty quickly. This was a really sensational story, wasn't it? both before and during the trial. The public takes a huge fascination with all of this, don't they? They do. I mean, it's, it's partly, I mean, what first got it going, I think, was, was the fact that they found this woman who was horrendous. Uh, you know, the, 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 the injuries were horrendous, and they were 
Victorian uh, uh, newspapers tended to dwell upon uh, the, those kinds of details. And uh, so the news of her, the attack, and the very specifics of the attack uh, spread across the country uh, pretty quickly. And, and because she wasn't discovered for, or her identity wasn't discovered for five days, there was a whole lot of speculation about who this could be. Uh, they knew she was a servant, and they knew that long before they, you know, they, they knew her name because she had calluses on her uh, elbows and knees, and this was a sign of years and years of hard labor, uh, hard servant's labor. But th- that's, that's all they do, and, and uh, the speculation went pretty wild, and there are some very interesting accounts that say a lot about, I think, the Victorians and the way they looked at women and a woman in this situation the long and the short of it is that they assumed that this had to be a woman who, in Victorian terms, was a fallen woman. Uh, she had fallen, uh, and, and they came up with a number of uh, specific but completely wrong uh, guesses as, as to who she was. Uh, so, yeah, there was that sort of sensational aspect of it. And this was, I mean, in terms of the literature of the time, this, this, this was the age of sensation. And uh, the I think as... The case played out once they realized it was Jane and once they saw Edmund as the possible killer of Jane. There was a story there, I think, that captivated the public. And I think that Edmund Pook, uh, who was arrested, was uh, put in jail without bail to sort of uh, see if he could be tried. And then when he was committed for trial, uh, was put in Newgate for over a month. His behavior, I think, uh, attracted a great deal of attention too. He either he either was the uh, in the eyes of the public uh, a complete victim himself who was completely wrongly accused, or he was one of the coolest uh, criminals that uh, anybody had ever experienced. I mean, it's really the age-old tale of privileged young men betting their families' servant girls. And I'm sure it left a bad taste in the mouths of, of many people. A lot of assumptions, I'm sure, were made. Right. Uh, there was an assumption, and I think I think uh, the police uh, could be accused of, of making that assumption too. Although they they did have some evidence uh, to support them in that ca- in, in in that claim. Uh, there were others that came forward and pointed out that Edmund had an interest in another uh, servant kind of an interest at the same time uh, that actually didn't pan out in the end. But he seemed to be the type uh, that would do that. At least that's what the press was representing, and that's uh, what the police were working on. It is, interestingly enough, the, I mean, when when his family heard uh, this accusation, I mean, they didn't know about it until the 1st of May when the police came to their door either. Uh, He had a brother and a mother and father, and they all uh, argued against that, jumping to that conclusion. They said he couldn't have done it, not not our Edmund, not our son, because... uh, uh, number one, he was just not that type of person. And uh, number two, he couldn't do it because he was always, uh, they always kept an eye on him. Uh, Edmund Pook, as it happens, uh, was an epileptic and subject to epileptic attacks. And uh, according to his family, they were afraid to let him go out on his own. So uh, uh, this this is something that they they said if if he had had any familiarities uh, with that servant, uh, they'd know about it. And therefore, there was nothing, nothing to this story. So where do you think the truth lies regarding their relationship? Huh. Well, it it really a lot of it comes down to whether you believe Jane or not, uh, whether you believe that Jane told her cousin uh, and told uh, several other witnesses, including the friend where she was staying um, after uh, she left the Pooks, that uh, she and Edmund were lovers. Nobody ever. There was not a single eyewitness who, who could claim to have seen Edmund and Jane ever uh, walking together. Interestingly enough, uh, Edmund Pook, when he was, uh, uh, the day he was arrested, uh, threw up an alternative theory, uh, which was that when he was walking, he said he saw Jane out walking with a young gent. And then he called up his brother and, 
his brother agreed that Edmund had told him that exactly that uh, days before. Uh, so interestingly enough, Edmund Pook was, it, it turns out, the only one to uh, have seen Jane with another male, uh, at least the only one to claim that. Uh, and it's interesting that nobody else, uh, if, if Jane was walking out with a gent, uh, there was nobody else once this case became, you know, the, the topic of conversation in Greenwich, in Deptford, in that entire area, uh, was able to come forward and uh, corroborate uh, his claim. Uh, so the, 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 the lack of another possible suspect for killing Jane, also for uh, getting Jane pregnant, is, I think, significant. And the fact that uh, his, uh, his family's claims that they kept an eye on him at all times clearly fell through in examination uh, in the magistrate's hearing and in the trial because we learned that Edmund Pook was uh, out of the family site uh, many times, uh, that Edmund Pook had a girlfriend. Uh, you know, that I mentioned that there was a whistle pulled out of the mud at the scene of the crime. The police later found out in tracking down one of his acknowledged girlfriends that he used that whistle to actually – this doesn't sound uh, too much like a gentleman, but he used that whistle to, to call her uh, when he went to her house and wanted to – so that his parents didn't – her parents didn't know about him. And uh, he often visited her house uh, and often called her away from it with the dog whistle. Uh, so that clearly uh, works against uh, what the parents had to say about uh, his his whereabouts, but also his opportunity to commit this crime in the first place. We will be right back. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. 
We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So all sorts of witnesses were called during the trial and a lot of twists and turns that you document in your book. What was the verdict when it was all over? Yeah, uh, the trial in the end, uh, it was it was uh, held in July, uh, July 12th uh, through 15th. Um, and uh, uh, in the end, Edmund Pook was acquitted. The uh, actual uh, Solicitor General uh, of England uh, was there for the prosecution, um, and he was a formidable, his name was Coleridge, he was actually a great-grandnephew of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, he was a pretty formidable uh, legal force, but uh, he was just coming off uh, an exhausting case uh, just before this. It's actually the case of the Tichborne Claimant, a very uh, well-known uh, Victorian uh, case. Uh, and interestingly enough, the judge in Edmund Pook's uh, trial was also coming off that case, and they were both exhausted. And I think I think it shows in the trial. I don't think it was Coleridge's best uh, best case by a long shot. But uh, the trial hinged upon eyewitness evidence, and it hinged upon uh, the possibility of admitting Jane's words, Jane's hearsay evidence, and Jane's hearsay evidence was not admitted, and the witnesses, uh, all the ones that we talked about, uh, were pretty thoroughly uh, taken care of by, by Edmund's defense. Um, and another witness uh, that we haven't talked about named Walter Richard Perrin uh, turned out to be a complete liar, complete, uh, uh, completely made up his testimony, and he was discredited, and I think that tainted the uh, defense case altogether. Edmund Fook, uh, in the end, was uh, completely acquitted, and uh, keep in mind the newspapers were reporting this trial day by day, and uh, once he was acquitted, cheers erupted in the courtroom, and cheers erupted outside uh, Newgate, uh, outside the Old Bailey. And uh, the, you get a real sense that uh, not just uh, the people in the courtroom, but the public as a whole agreed with this uh, verdict. Uh, I should the public as a whole, with the exception of quite a few people in Greenwich and Deptford, uh, in the neighborhood uh, where the crime uh, took place. Could you talk more about Walter Richard Perrin? What was his original testimony, and how was he proven a liar? Walter Richard Perrin uh, was interesting. He drove Edmund and Edmund's defense uh, nuts because Edmund was committed for trial uh, at the very beginning of June, uh, and usually trials followed pretty quickly at the time uh, in 1871. Uh, and the, the trial was going to take place in June uh, at the next session of uh, uh, the Central Criminal Court at, at the Old Bailey. Uh, and uh, in the week before uh, the trial, Walter Richard Perrin came forward. He was a bit of a character. He, 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 was, he, he, he had dreams of being a music hall singer. He was actually a singer in a tiny uh, music hall in, in, in Sydenham, uh, which is also in, in South London. Uh, and he worked for his uh, uh, mother at his mother's business. Uh, she had a cab business, a horse uh, business, and uh, he, he was also, apparently they also gave donkey rides uh, up on uh, Blackheath, which is right next to Greenwich. Uh, and so he was called in the press uh, quite a bit, the, the donkey driver. Uh, he came forward with a story of being able to witness, uh, came about as close as you could to being an eyewitness to Edmund buying the murder weapon in Deptford. At that store in Deptford where the police tracked the murder weapon to, uh, a number of witnesses came forward and other eyewitnesses that, uh, were, uh, whose stories were tested about uh, seeing Edmund or somebody like Edmund uh, buying the hammer. Well, he, Perrin actually claimed that he knew Edmund and uh, 
that he had spoken with Edmund uh, that night in Deptford. Uh, it was uh, the Monday before the murder on the street and then watched Edmund turn around, walk into the store and then watched uh, the proprietress of the store go to the window and take out a plasterer's hammer, uh, the, which, looked, which was uh, the murder weapon. And so he, he was the one that, at least according to his story, was able to connect Edmund pretty clearly to the hammer. The problem was that uh, for whatever reasons, uh, and just achieving notoriety uh, is very likely uh, the main one of those, he didn't see any of it. He, he wasn't there. And uh, the... Uh, uh, Edmund's defense was able to destroy his credibility uh, and pretty much tear his story apart uh, in pretty short order. Uh, and uh, whether he hoped to help the defense or, you know, if he even had that in mind, he actually served to do just, uh, sorry, the prosecution. Uh, he did just the opposite. Uh, he, he destroyed their case. Uh, he, I think he uh, made uh, every single witness for the prosecution uh, tainted. So, yeah, he, 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 Walter Richard Perrin, if there's anybody that uh, single-handedly uh, ruined uh, the case uh, against Edmund Pook, it was him. Talk, if you will, about this shift in public perception of Edmund Pook. At the beginning, when he's named the suspect and arrested, he draws hostile crowds at train stations, etc. But when the trial is over, he's being cheered. What is the reason for this change of mood? Well, it is. It's. It's. I think it's. It's a partial shift. I guess it's a shift in the general public opinion. I mean, the the, the opinion that sort of the nationwide uh, opinion uh, about the case. I mean, at first, as 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 you said, I mean, it seemed like an open and shut case, and the evidence seemed to be really going against him. And I think the real shift uh, happened. It could have been begun during the very, very long uh, process, uh, the sort of the pretrial process with the magistrates hearing and the uh, inquest, uh, all, both of those, uh, the inquest in Southwark and the magistrates here in Greenwich, uh, met uh, uh, five or six times each, met over the course of uh, the month of May. And, uh, and all of that was widely reported. And so you could see the evidence being uh, tested and challenged by that solicitor, Henry Pook. And uh, therefore, I think there was some question even before going into trial, whether Edmund Pook uh, did it or not. But I think the trial was what really pushed things over the edge. I think that the reporting of the trial every day and seeing the defense witnesses, really their stories, uh, what there were of those stories, and uh, there were actually uh, a number of alibi witnesses that proved, uh, at least according to their testimony, that Edmund Pook could not have been anywhere near the scene of the crime at the time. Uh, those witnesses' testimony held up, and the prosecution witnesses, by and large, uh, uh, fell apart. And uh, uh, by the fourth day of the trial, anyway, uh, the last day of the trial, I think there was a very strong sense that uh, people kind of forgot about Jane and, and her being the victim. And there was much more sort of uh, immediate sense that uh, Edmund Pook was the victim of a zealous police uh, department uh, who, who went too far, who wanted to get their man uh, to the point that they, they, they chose him and then they did their best to uh, invent a case against him. Yeah. That was the general feeling. Uh, there was a very, very different feeling again in Greenwich, uh, uh, at least among the uh, largely working class population of Greenwich uh, and Deptford and Lewisham and, and really southeast London. Uh, their feeling was very different where uh, the crowd outside the Old Bailey in central London cheered uh, the results of that case. Another crowd, a larger crowd, had actually been assembling in Greenwich outside the Pook's home, and their feeling was exactly the opposite, and they began uh, to howl. They began to protest. Uh, they did everything they could to make it clear that they did not agree with that verdict. So this was a pretty pivotal period in English law, wasn't it? The older more anti antiquated views of the law and police procedure were being tossed out the door for more modern views. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, sort of two uh, ways to look at that. The, this is 
the sort of pre-reform uh, legal system in England. Uh, there was sort of, and actually, a lot of the laws, a lot of the procedures, a lot of what Edmund Pook went through uh, were based upon precedents that stretch back to the Plantagenets, to the Middle Ages. And uh, just a couple years after 1873, the first of a number of sweeping legal reforms were passed that changed the structure of the uh, of British law. The whole idea of uh, a court of common pleas and the court of exchequer uh, and the court of uh, the Queen's bench, as it was then and actually is now, that was all abolished. Uh, and certain kinds of judges, certain kinds of positions changed as well. Um, but also uh, certain types of procedures uh, have shifted. For one thing, uh, in Edmund Book's trial uh, uh, in, in 1871, defendants could not. It's not that they could choose not to, but they could not. Uh, they were legally not entitled to testify um, in their own defense. Uh, so Edmund Pook wasn't faced with that decision that I think uh, uh, people are, uh, the accused are in criminal trials now as to whether to, to, to stand up and tell his story or uh, not. He couldn't do it. There were also different rules. There were different hearsay uh, rules, uh, and that was obviously important to this case as well. So what happened to Edmund Pook? How did he live the, the rest of his life? Well, he walked free. He actually lived for another uh, almost uh, 50 years. Uh, he died, I believe, in 1920. Uh, so had had a good long life. Uh, worked at his father's printing business. Uh, when his father died, he and his uh, mother uh, ran the shop. He got married uh, uh, several years uh, later. Uh, he had a child. Uh, the child uh, actually lived, uh, sadly, for only two years uh, and then died. He mostly lived around Greenwich, which was interesting because there was this real sense that uh, uh, he had disappeared. I mean, there seemed to be this, this, this odd sort of universal belief that he wasn't around anymore. And uh, that actually, uh, several years after the case, he had pretty much disappeared from, obviously, from the headlines, uh, disappeared from public memory. But then there was a story that... He had died, and so he was brought back for a little bit. The problem is that, that he hadn't died. It was uh, somebody named John Pook who is not any relation to him at all. Uh, but the interesting thing is that if the report, if reporters were uh, uh, had uh, enough initiative, they could have tracked him down easily. He was living in Greenwich at the time. But uh, you get the sense that he was kind of hiding in plain sight. Uh, the turbulence after the trial uh, really got to him, I think. I mean, again, I was talking about the crowd uh, – uh, that just refused uh, to believe that he uh, should have been acquitted and were vehement in demanding justice for Jane uh, long after that. Edmund Pook, the Pook family refused to leave. I mean, the family itself stayed and sort of weathered the storm. But Edmund Pook actually did disappear. He actually took off. He uh, he, he uh, went into uh, a rural Kent, uh, a town fairly nearby, uh, called Hearn Bay, but uh, there's, there's a sense that, he, that the strain uh, did get to him. There's also, actually, if we're talking about what happened with Edmund Pook, uh, I should point out that the story, at least the legal story, didn't end with his acquittal. Uh, obviously, he couldn't be tried for the same crime again, but uh, because there were, there were people that uh, protested the verdict, uh, that there was one man in particular, a man by the name of Newton Crossland, who wrote a pamphlet and letters to the editor to a paper, which in some detail uh, talked about the trial as being a travesty. Because of that, the Pooks, uh, Edmund, his father, Ebenezer, and their solicitor, Henry, made the dubious uh, decision that they would try to destroy, try to scotch any attempt to uh, claim Edmund might have done it. And the way they did it was by basically suing anybody. And, and I mean, any, I mean, they, they, there were uh, a good dozen uh, libel trials that they initiated or tried to initiate to uh, sue anybody who would dare claim or publish a claim or sell a claim, uh, sell Crossland's pamphlet in particular, that Edmund Pook was the killer. And so the litigation started up again and lasted actually well into 1872. Uh, and that kept the, uh, uh, the trial alive. Uh, and that also had the effect of changing public opinion uh, about uh, Edmund Pook and the case. So at the end of your book, you draw some personal conclusions. 
to the story. Who do you think killed Jane Clusen? Uh, okay. Um, this is, yeah, I, I, interestingly, the, as, as you pointed out, the subtitle of the book is A True Story of Victorian Law and Disorder. In the U.S., in the U.K., they decided to uh, go with uh, a different subtitle, of Victorian Murder Mystery Solved, which puts a lot of pressure on me with those, uh, those last few pages. But I think that uh, one interesting thing about the case to me is that uh, there's an abundance of evidence and there are uh, not just the trial transcripts but the very uh, thorough reports of the police investigations and the very uh, lengthy uh, testimony in the magistrate's trial and in the uh, inquest uh, as well as the civil case. Uh, the thing about the civil case is that Edmund Pook who couldn't testify in the criminal case, um, had to testify in the civil case. He had to go on the stand because he was the one who had to say that that this person who claimed that he was Jane Clusen's killer uh, was a liar because he couldn't have done it. Uh, so he, he, he had to establish that case. Uh, based upon all of that, there is a great deal of evidence, and uh, I believe that it's evidence well worth revisiting. Uh, we're talking about the forensics uh, in, in 1871. They had the same kinds of concerns. They were looking at the same kinds of things that we'd look at today in a case like that. There's the footprint evidence. There was also blood evidence, and there, was also, uh, there were also hairs uh, found upon the hammer, the murder weapon. So uh, there was all of that. Uh, but you get a sense that this, I mean, this is really the very, very beginning of the what I, I would call the forensic age, the age of forensic investigation. And uh, it, it's pretty interesting what they were able to come up with and what they were able to deduce. But it's also interesting to see what they couldn't deduce from this. I mean, there is no, there is no physical evidence uh, left from the case. Uh, actually, interestingly, Jane's clothing uh, was a part of the, the Black Museum, which is now called the Crime Museum at Scotland Yard, but it disappeared. Um, a long time ago, and the hammer uh, evidence, uh, that that has disappeared. So we don't have that to go by, but we do have the physical descriptions. Uh, we know that the substance that the police found in Edmund's clothing was blood. We know that because there was a specialist at the time who did, a, for the time, a very sophisticated chemical analysis uh, and concluded uh, without doubt that, that, that there was blood. That's as far as they could go at the time. We, they didn't have uh, you know, any knowledge of blood, obviously DNA, uh, no knowledge of blood types, but really didn't even know how to distinguish uh, to a certainty between human blood and animal blood, or at least mammalian blood. So all of that they didn't know at the time, but they did have a, a very clear idea of the blood evidence uh, as it appeared on Edmund's clothing, and there were a number of descriptions of that. And uh, I think that evidence, as well as... The hearsay evidence that was excluded, but I would argue would not be excluded in a British courtroom today, both pointed pretty clearly to Edmund Pook as uh, the killer of Jane Clusen. And that is your personal belief? I, I, I have to admit, I mean, it's, it's, it's when I was looking at this case, uh, it's, it's, it's important, I think, when you're, first, when you're gathering the details, as I think you could say the same thing was, would have been important, should be important for the Metropolitan Police at the time. To uh, to keep an open mind and and I did but there there are uh, many many things about the case that uh, that that point to Edmund Pook in the way that again I think it pointed to Edmund Pook for the police one thing that that uh, I didn't mention about the day that Edmund Pook was arrested uh, was uh, what he said actually when Jane Clusen uh, when the police told him about Jane Clusen and. Uh, uh, this, again, was at least when he was uh, the first time he was supposed to have heard about uh, the identity of the victim on Kidbrook Lane and uh, his connection with the victim. It was a servant. She had lived with him for two years in that house. And uh, he very coldly said when they said, uh, your servant is dead, um, he said she was a dirty girl and left in consequence. 
Uh, and it was actually a story that the rest of the book sort of took up and repeated. She was dirty, and that's why she left. Um, she actually left uh, the Pook's uh, house a couple weeks before she was murdered. Uh, and she left. Uh, it was clear that she left after some kind of an altercation. But that, uh, depending on who you asked, uh, the details of that altercation were, were quite different. Uh, according to her relatives, she, she was leaving to get another job to work in a factory rather than to work uh, for uh, the Pook family anymore. Uh, and again, there was that sense that they knew that she was a lover. According to the family, she was filthy and they had warned her several times before. But finally, push came to shove and she agreed to leave uh, because she was filthy. That story and also what we learn about Jane uh, and what I learned about Jane through you know sort of investigating uh, the, this case uh, really uh, there's nobody else who made that claim about Jane and there were plenty of people who made the opposite claim that she was respectable and uh, in the Victorian world respectability and cleanliness went hand in hand and they were really making uh, an attack on her very, on her respectability. There were others who upheld that. So there was a real belief that uh, that, that the Pooks were lying, and that Edmund, uh, when he gave that as a reason for Jane's leaving, uh, was lying. So there were things like that 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 that, that pointed to him. But really, until you look at the the blood evidence and you consider the strength of the witnesses who told uh, Jane's story. Uh, as as she told it to them, then you get a much stronger sense that uh, that he did it. He did it. His excuse, his reason for blood getting on his clothes was that he was an epileptic um, and that he had had an epileptic, epileptic attack. His brother uh, and his family corroborated that uh, in the weeks before, uh, and he gave very specific details about that attack. And uh, it's clear by looking at the blood evidence, the evidence on his clothes, the blood that he said came from blood dripping from a tongue, a bitten tongue in an attack, that, uh, that, 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 that the, the spatter evidence could not, could not uh, have come from uh, biting a tongue in an epileptic attack. And uh, the configuration pointed to as at least one of the prosecutors was certain about uh, and believed to the end of his life, and he lived a long life, that Edmund Pook had done it, it pointed to the fact that this this blood was blood thrown off uh, in uh, the hammer attack on Jane Clouson. So where can people go to find out more about you and your books? Yeah, well, the book um, is available, I, I believe, uh, pretty much anywhere uh, you get a book, and certainly available on Amazon. Uh, and uh, the website is uh, one word, prettyjaneandtheviper.com, prettyjaneandtheviper.com. Um, yeah, and there are a number of other, I, I, I kind of try to continue the case on that site. Well, this has been great. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. You can visit my Most Notorious Facebook page for updates on the show. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>